This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we continue our review of The Chosen with a discussion on the fifth episode, The Wedding Gift. Coming down the back half stretch here. Last four episodes of the season. And I am tired today, Brent Billings. You need to, you need to pick up my energy level. It's your responsibility. Get me going here. What's going on? <laughs> Well, I don't know actually how much energy we can have with this because this episode is incredibly dense. There's so many characters, so many like points of cultural context going on. There is. Um, yep. Yeah, we're going to have to power through this somehow. No, there, there is. There's a lot of intersecting storylines. Absolutely. So let's get right into it. Fire off that spoiler horn. So we begin in Jerusalem, and as I was watching it, the... Subtitle said 88, but then in the roundtable discussion with the consultants, one of them was saying, you know, a lot of people are probably going to have a problem with the fact that you pegged it at 8012. So apparently they originally had it subtitled as 8012 and then changed it later on. Which, yeah, which would have been horrific because there's no way it's 12. Like no school of scholars, like there's no way that zero corresponds to the birth of Jesus. Um, in any historical timeline. So uh, <laughs> to have done eighty twelve would have been a big mistake. Well, and they they discussed that a little bit. Some guy who like came up with the the dating mechanism, you know, several hundred years after the fact, you know, like ignored some historical documents and assumed something or other. And so that's how the that's how the dates got off. And then they figured it out like a thousand years later in yeah. the 1600s. They figured out like, oh, actually, that, that's off by about four years. <laughs> yeah. there's And there's no run on that back, you know, that much. Yep. So anyway, they fixed that. So I, I'm assuming uh, I, I'm watching on a disc. I'm assuming the online version is also corrected. But yes, 88. Yep. It was 88. And uh, yeah, there's a four to six year gap, depending on which train of thought you're looking at. Not 88, but the year of our Lord eight <laughs> just to be clear uh so anyway mary um comes in the scene i don't think you realize immediately that it's her but she's frantically looking for jesus and uh uh he ends up um coming around the corner with joseph and they have a discussion about where he's been and he's like you know of course i was i was with my father and she's like no you weren't and and uh and they kind of like gestured to the temple or whatever and like oh okay okay and uh she's like well you know whatever and then and then the line uh that that the young jesus says you know if if now is not my time then then when if not now when and i'm like oh man and and mary it's almost a fourth wall break she's not looking quite into the camera but very close and and she says please and um yeah it's just kind of a i don't know the the first time i watched it i felt like the scene was a little bit clunky the dialogue was a little bit like i don't know i don't know i don't know if i want to peg it on the the actor who was playing young jesus or what but it just it felt a little weird um but you know, it does come back later. So it does. Yeah, it was a, it was a good scene for that. They're setting up that callback at the very end of the episode, and that part I appreciated. Um, I actually think at the end of the episode, if we remember to talk about it, there's actually a whole lot more going on there. Uh, I, I appreciate what they did artistically. Like they set it up to where she can call back to this moment when he's younger, and that's the intimate mother son. Like, because what you're trying to deal with on some level is like, how is Mary able to like convince jesus to do this miracle and and they do it in that artistic way which i loved and i wouldn't even say that those elements aren't potentially taking place i kind of would love to squish the content i already had in my brain together with some of these beautiful artistic ideas but uh yeah it was a it was a i appreciated what they did there and especially what they're having to work with as making an episode uh, it worked. Yeah, and the the director was talking about like their struggle, like how how much does Mary know? Um, you know, how much does she defer to Jesus even when he's younger? Um, how much does Jesus understand about what he's doing? Um, so yeah, lots of lots of like tension, lots of we don't quite know how things played out, uh, and so I, I think it was a good balance of how they did things. I thought it was interesting that when uh, Jesus was talking to Joseph. 
he referred to him as Abba, but then when he was talking about God, he used the English father. Yeah. And that was a, yeah, that was a weird interplay. Um, but in, in the whole language, because I haven't been doing that. They haven't been like preserving some Hebrew expressions like that. So that was... Although they did use, in episode four, they used Ema for mom. That's true. No, that's absolutely true. Uh, now you say that, you're absolutely right. Um, y- yeah. Uh, and I, I do like how they've done the whole, how much did Mary know? Like throughout this whole, you know, this episode especially. But I, I like how they balance that, especially in the scene, even with Joseph as well. Uh, and I love like as the as that as this uh, scene progresses. <laughs> I love the moment where like Joseph, like you think he's going to go in to scold Jesus, but there's like this like sense of well I can't scold him, so well, yes. Jesus and he like kind of pauses. Please don't do that again. <laughs> this like moment of pride. This like you should have seen him like the scribes were like glued to what he was saying. He was teaching them. And, and, you know, like it's that, it's that thing where it's like, you know, I really, you should be in trouble, but I'm also really impressed by what you did. So I can't, you know, (laughs) right. Yeah, absolutely. On that part. But even when he goes to make that statement, there's this dramatic pause. It's a brief pause. But when he, when he says, Jesus, don't do that again, there's this, like, it could have come off like, an angry dad, like, don't do that again. But there was like this Jesus, like he's going to say it. And then he catches himself and hmm, don't, please don't. Is it like a re, it's like more of a request than a scold. And then obviously as they're walking away, the, the joke of, you know, and, and I love the word he uses transgression. Like how will we, you know, what am I to do to help you repay your mother for this transgression? Yeah. Which I thought that's great. <laughs> wink, wink, nod, nod. <laughs> right. Maybe, maybe rub her feet. And I thought, oh, clever callback. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. So then uh, we jump ahead to Cana, AD 26, and uh, Dina steps out, and she's making preparations for her son's wedding. Her son is Asher. Um, I don't think he ever speaks. Um, he's just kind of in the background. You see him in a couple of scenes, but he never actually talks. Um, and then Mary arrives, and uh, turns out she's Dina's best friend, and, and she's there early to help out with uh, everything that they need to do for the wedding. Yeah, I thought that was good. Uh, I like the setting. I like the, yeah, uh, uh, everything felt right about that. Very, very quick scene. And then we jump over to Nicodemus talking to John the Baptist and the beautiful light streaming in uh, from behind Nicodemus. I love I love this scene. And, um, you know, they're going back and forth a little bit. And John says, you know, the Pharisees would have labeled Moses a lunatic for talking to a shrub. And <laughs> Nicodemus is a little bit taken back by this. And he's like, do you consider yourself to be like Moses, like trying to probe, like, who does John really believe he is? And, uh, then, then he kind of like, you know, Nicodemus was maybe a little combative at first, but then he, he grabs the stool and sits down, takes off his, uh, uh what, what would you call his headdress or whatever? Yeah. I don't know what that would, would even necessarily be called, but that was, uh, that was well-designed. That was well-directed. There's this, there's this whole interplay between them that I really appreciate. Like they're, they are definitely frustrated with each other's worldviews and who each other is. They are definitely going back and forth. There's a couple moments where it's like, well, this is just going to fall apart. Nicodemus is just going to leave and this is over. And yet they, they are compromising just enough that they can see each other. And I thought, man, this is, this is actually kind of a cool model of like, there are other Christian worldviews. There are other political views. There are whatever that we just have a hard time even being in the same room with. And yet here are two people like trying to like, they're trying just hard enough to hang on to each other in the conversation. And yet it's, it's still, and yet part of the reason why it works between these two characters is they're not beating around the bush. Like they're very direct to each other. Like, right. I, I, I hate your frock. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. John confronts Nicodemus. He's like, your clothes could have fed three children in Nazareth for a month. Yes. Yeah, this is not like a false – like I feel like in our culture we have like this false pseudo-respect where we actually don't respect them at all, but we act like it's the it's the decent thing to do. And yet this interchange is – this exchange is, is – it, 
it's it's definitely direct and they say how they feel and yet it, it opens the door to like the the clashing of the worldviews in a way that conversation can happen it was I don't even know what I'm trying to say with any of those notes, but I did make notes about that. I liked it. And then, you know, Nicodemus is saying like, hey, look, I'm not your captor. Rome, Rome is the one who put you in this prison. And and then they they uh, have this back and forth. And John realizes like, oh, Nicodemus is not really here on official business. And, and Nicodemus says, yeah, I'm I'm here of my own accord. I'm not here. For anything else, I'm trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah, that's where John catches it and he realizes, okay, I'm going to change my posture a little bit. Totally changes his tone, says, you know, tell me from the beginning, you know, tell me what's going on. I like that. So then we uh, see Eden pressing grapes and um, it kind of lingered on that for just a few moments. And I like in that moment, I was like, oh, wow, that is like a lot of work. (laughs) That does not look like it's a quick process at all. And usually done by lots of other people. Uh, like as far as the wine press itself and how it operated was dead on, like historically speaking, perfect. It usually would not be done by, you know, one lone wife at home. Like you would have done that in the community with other people, uh, you know, two or three folks in the middle of that. And yet for the scene, they got to do that. And the whole thing, I mean, you've heard, if you've listened to the podcast, you've heard us talk about the calling of a disciple. I don't know if he exactly gets to go home and have this conversation. It's not that it wouldn't have happened that way. Like there's possibility. That when Jesus called his disciples, there were these kind of exchanges. Um, we kind of have deconstructed and debunked that as we talked about it in session three. But for the purpose of making the the episode in the season here for the art, uh, I, I can appreciate what they're <laughs> what they're having to accomplish by by doing all this. So that was good. Yeah, and I, you know, they're they're in the area where they're going to be doing most of their ministry anyway. So it's not it doesn't seem far-fetched to me that they would still see each other at some point you know yeah it's tricky to know so yeah so simon does arrive and he explains what happened that there was no fish all night and then they had this miraculous catch and um he talks about the moment when when jesus asked him to let down his net one more time and he's like look i did it anyway because of the way he looked at me and he's like doesn't even quite understand how to explain it um and then he references, I love this, he references the Elijah and Elisha story, and and Eden finishes the story because she knows her text so well. Except she kind of butchers the story, and that's not a comment, but yeah, I mean, I mean, the whole thing is that he doesn't immediately sacrifice the oxen and burn. He actually tells Elijah, like, oh, really? And then Elijah's ticked off, and he's like, what have I done to you? And he leaves, and then Elisha... There was kind of this like, yeah, he immediately, you know, sacrifices the oxen oxen and follows him. And I'm like, oh, I mean, it's kind of like not at all how the Jews understand the story. But hey. Okay. 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 That's why we're all here. That's what we're doing this for. But she does know her text. And and, uh, and again, for a woman in their culture, that's that's a thing that she knows her her stories like that. Especially if we think about like Bet Sefer, we think perhaps women were or, or girls were involved in Bet Sefer going through Torah. But then this story would have been in the rest of Tanakh that yep. she wouldn't have been in in school for. So, and in a lot of circles, I think, like I even think of like the Nicodemus and uh, Zahara setting, and I, I I feel like in maybe a lot of settings, the wife would have just quietly like let the husband tell the story, like that's his job. I, I like Eden, like jumping in there and engaging the story and saying, yeah, and this this is what happens and. That was good. I like that. Uh, so Simon gets um, pretty excited as he's telling Eden about how he was called and about who Jesus is. And Eden is overcome with emotion and seems upset to Simon. Uh, but actually, she's thrilled. And she's like, look, of course he chose you. She's completely supportive, uh, completely understanding of what's going on. And Simon's like, look, this isn't going to be easy. When have we ever had anything easy? not our people's way (laughs) and then simon joins eden um in the great press and much flirting ensues and uh yeah fun little scene uh for their relationship again and also one thing i noticed in the scene is that simon is wearing tassels and i I, i don't think we've seen that before right uh you've caught them every now and then if you've been watching they're they're in there and they're in quite a bit of this episode actually all over the place when jesus walks in to the wedding on both garments that he's wearing, they have they've been in there 
if you're looking for them. Well, I was talking about Simon specifically. Simon wasn't wearing them before this, right? Yeah, I or feel like he? I've seen them. Yeah, I feel like I've seen them on him more than this one occasion. Okay. At least hints of them, but very prominent in that in that episode. The way that they actually come kind of out of his garment and hang there while he's sitting. Yeah, and later in with the, the blue thread. Right. And later in the episode you see all of the disciples wearing them. So, it seems yeah. like it's like look, if you weren't wearing them now, you definitely are once Jesus calls you. Yeah, sure, absolutely. And and I made a comment, what was it? Last episode or the episode before about how I really thought Eden was playing in my perspective a great uh, the great image of an Etzer Connecto. Like she really came after Peter and opposed him. Uh, an episode or two ago when she confronted his lack of obedience and how he's running from God and and held her ground, still let Peter be him and let him be, you know, responsible for the, the consequence of an oath, but still stood against him. And now you see like the full circle of that Etzer Conigdo in this episode where she says, yes, like, I'm I'm so happy that somebody her line is finally sees in you what I've always seen in you. Like outside of Jesus, who would be the person that would call out that identity more than anybody else on the planet? It would be that. It'd be that spouse. Um and I love her both in one episode standing absolutely not against like uh, uh, opposing him with righteous opposition and now on the other side going, "Yes, and this this is why I stood my ground back there is because this is also a part of who you are. And I loved that. That was good. Yeah, for sure. So then we have uh, Rama and Thomas. Rama? I don't know how you say that. Uh-huh. Um, they're loading up the cart for the wedding feast. They seem to be like the caterers. And uh, they're arguing about whether they're taking three or four jars of wine. And she's like, well, they paid for three. And Thomas is like, well, I mean, we could take it out of, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, he says that they could cover it. And she says, well, that would that would completely eliminate all of your margin. And there's this like weird thing going on. And Thomas is like, well, aren't we a team? And like, is he thinking they would split the cost if they had to use it? Or I don't know. It seems like there's some kind of weird relationship going on there and thomas has a misunderstanding of what their relationship status is and we don't really uh get any resolution to that it seems it seems like there's this awkward thing yeah uh, pretty much the whole time about what how their what their setup is yeah no doubt and i think i've just assumed that there's i don't know if they're setting it up for later it feels like there's a thing between thomas and her like romantic interest but maybe i'm just assuming that based on everything else i've ever watched um but yeah, and again, another great instance of where I just I just appreciate how they came up with the backstory. They took a character that we have some, you know, doubting Thomas, and they gave it a very realistic, a very um, plausible, believable personality and backstory. And I, another backstory that I really liked. Yeah. So then we're back to uh, Mary and Dina uh, preparing flowers. Um, Dina is singing the praises of her new daughter, talking about how great she is and, uh, how much they love her. And, and then she explains, but, but her parents, like that's kind of a tense relationship that they have going on there. It seems like her family is much more well off and, and that just is causing some, um, some interesting situations between their families. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Is this the scene? Is this the same scene? I can't tell in my notes where, Mary references her own wedding, or is that in another one? Uh, is that there? I don't. I don't remember. I don't think I made a note of it. Wherever it shows up, I did appreciate that little tongue-in-cheek. You know, she Mary is reminiscing about her wedding, talking about how much different it was, and Dina's like, "Oh, like why is it so different?" And she's like, "You remember?" And she points to this pregnant belly, and I just thought, like, "Oh, yes, that was such a." Uh, <laughs> right. I mean, that's exactly you know, what they would have grappled with. Yeah. Um, the stigma, the cultural. Yeah. 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 I like that. Uh, that, that may have been in the next scene, but I, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Um, so we have Simon and Andrew walking to meet Jesus. Um, they're arguing about whether or not they should have brought lunch, how they're going to carry it, what, whether anyone else will have brought it, what they're going to do, um, which isn't really addressed directly later, but, but it does turn out like, Oh, they found a nice fig tree. And so, Lunch is covered, according to Jesus. And so they kind of give this look at each other, which is great. 
Um, but Simon, um, he, he's like, you know, we, we watched and learned from our father how to fish and, and we just, we just watched for a long time and then we just did it and we made our own mistakes and Andrew's pretty nervous about everything. And Simon's trying to reassure him with this story and the story keeps coming up, um, throughout the episode, but then they come up to the other disciples and, uh, Mary's there and, uh, we have, young James and John and Thaddeus. And then turns out big James is up in the tree. He's the one, um, bringing the figs down. And so they kind of have an introduction and deal with the multiple names. And, um, which was interesting because big James, who is kind of giving him a more explicit name, like we don't really see anything else from him for the rest of the episode. So I'm assuming he's going to come up more later, but well, they're going to take the, the more popular opinion that I, I have routinely stood against my own chagrin with all the emails I received that, uh, Big James is going to be the triumvirate son of Zebedee James, so he'll definitely be coming back. I did chuckle at how they worked in James the Just, because uh, that will be the... Uh, is that right? Boy, yeah. I see, I get so caught up in my own theory of who the Jameses are that now I'm all twisted. Yeah, and yeah, and it's, <laughs> it's definitely complicated. But yeah, Jesus says... Um, like he asks, he asks, like, what are we going to do with two Jameses? And, and the taller one says, well, what if I go by big James? And he's like, that seems fine. And he turns to the other one. What do you think about that young James? And, uh, and he says, yeah, that, that seems fair to me. And Jesus remarks a sense of justice too. Huh? And it's settled. And that, and that's a great play on, I mean, he will be called in the book of Acts, James, the just, um, is how the book of Acts, when he's martyred right before the Jerusalem council, um, they they call that James James suggests. So I thought that was a great, uh, just some more great tongue in cheek writing that wasn't overly cheesy, but just was fun. So they head out for the wedding, and then we see Mary and Dina again, and they're inspecting the hoopa. And Mary's like, you know, it's maybe a little crooked, <laughs> and she's like, I, I think I know someone who can fix this. And Dina's like, no, 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 this is this is fine. Like we got what we paid for. Um, just let's let's get the flowers and we'll make it good and then uh hella comes in and um she says you know i i've abner abner and hella are the parents of the bride and so she's like yeah i came here early um so that we could select a table for our, our family and uh dina's like well you know isn't that isn't that up to the the bride and groom like they've kind of set this whole thing up and, and maybe you can set your preferences aside. And she's like, well, it's not personal. You know, Abner just likes things his way. And, and Dina says, you know, like maybe, maybe not a good idea. And she's like, yeah, you know, for really important stuff, I think we can set aside our preferences. And she's like, well, I hope, I hope it's important enough. <laughs> And, uh, so they exchange some more pleasantries and then, and then Hella turns and she's like, uh, the hoop is pretty crooked. <laughs> right. Yes. And it really is. And, uh, and everyone's noticing and it's great. And they did a good job portraying the tension between wealth and like, I was even curious, like, okay, what's the backstory where, um, uh, okay. What's the name of the wealthy father again? Abner. Uh, Abner. Uh, so, uh, I want to know the backstory of why he even let his uh, son marry this, you know, like his daughter, his son, his daughter, marry the son of, you know, this so, you know, unwell off family. Like, there's got to be a reason because there was there was a they portrayed that tension between, well, we're really successful family. You guys are super poor, like and that tension between that. So not that it's implausible by any stretch of the imagination, but I would love to know. You know, the backstory is Abner just a sucker for his, his, does his daughter have him wrapped around his finger? Was there some, I would love to know. I'd love to know. We're not going to get told, but I'd love to know. Yeah. Yeah. We don't really, we don't really know much about the bride and groom. I don't know if they'll end up coming back later, but yeah, they're, they're basically non, non speaking parts. And we just see them briefly. Um, so then we go back to when Jesus walking with the disciples and, and Simon kind of has this little like sparkle in his eye and he runs up next to Jesus and they're talking about going to the wedding and who's going to be at the wedding. And he's like, you know, this seems like, seems like a good time. There's not going to be any Romans there. You could introduce us as your disciples. You could get some more disciples. Let's, you know, let's get this show on the road. And, uh, 
and Andrew is like, do they, do they even know how remarkable it is to have Jesus at their wedding? And Jesus is like, well, considering that I was the clumsy teenager who cracked my head open at Asher's when he was a child, I don't think he finds me remarkable. Which I thought was a great, great moment. And he's like, you know, this is not my day. This is really about them. So that that's not why we're going. Yep. Yep. Great job. So then we're back to Mary and Dina, and now they're putting flowers on the hooper, the hoopa, and it actually is looking pretty good at this point. Um, covered in flowers, it doesn't really look like it's crooked. I don't know if they actually fixed it before they put the flowers on there or what they did, uh, but it's looking good. And shooting a lot of weddings as a photographer, I can tell you that I've seen, I, I haven't seen very many hoopas, but I've seen uh, displays like this where flowers are covering some sort of structure like this. And they are making it look way easier than it actually is. Like this would take hours and hours and hours of work to do to do this. Even if all the flowers were like put together and they're just like attaching them to the structure, it would still take several hours. So I think while they don't actually get into it in the show, like the extravagance that they're putting into this, even as a, a, a poor family, to whatever extent they are poor, um, they're really like going all out for this. They're doing everything they can to make up for all the things that they can't. Yeah. And so Dina's feeling uh, kind of insecure about everything. Mary's encouraging her. And then they they start discussing Jesus and, and what he's been up to and where he's been working and, and his students. And, and Dina's like, well, I bet he's pretty handsome. And Mary's, you know, like, you know, <laughs> like she's very, very proud of her son uh, without like bragging on him too much. And uh, one thing I noticed um, because I was trying to like make sure I was spelling everyone's names right and making sure I was getting because there's so many additional characters here. I was like, OK, I got to got to get some help. So I turned on the subtitles for a few portions and I noticed that they're capitalizing the pronouns for Jesus at this point. It's like, well, I, yes, but also like. Dina doesn't know who Jesus is at this point. And like, does Mary even really understand that? But like across the board, they're capitalizing it through the whole episode. So obviously it's just like a, you know, it's not about the character's understanding, but I, I do feel like it's kind of a weird, I feel like maybe they shouldn't have done it because like, especially at this point, Jesus is not like, he's not even in public ministry, let alone known to everyone about who he is. So I, anyway, just, just a comment that I had about the subtitles there. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a great point. I think I would agree with that. I always find it interesting. It's somewhat unrelated that in in, in most translations they don't even they they won't even capitalize the pronoun for for God because deciding who the pronoun is referring to is sometimes very interpretive. And you, is that he refer refer to God or refer to the person speaking or refer to some other character and some other subject or and so they they just make the universal call to not capitalize it because in doing so you make a huge interpretive leap. Um, uh, now that doesn't apply here because we're not translating and they know what they're trying to do with the dialogue. But um, it's always given me a lot of like great pause, like okay, yeah. And, and I think there's even some editorial rules about when you capitalize. Uh, you're the editor, Brent. Isn't there a rule about typically you don't capitalize the he when referring to Jesus? Well, it just it. It, it depends on how you're doing it. It's kind of a personal preference thing. I, okay. For me, I think typically we're trying to like emphasize the Philippians 2 reality of like Jesus set his divinity aside and was approaching life as a man. And so a lot of times I would say probably don't want to capitalize it. You could switch back and forth whether you're whether you're like, okay, does Jesus have his God goggles on or not? If he does, I'm going to capitalize it. If he doesn't, then I won't. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really, it's really just a preference. I think it's, it's pretty convenient in our modern context where I can talk to the person who wrote it and say, okay, who are you talking about here? And then it's actually nice because if you're talking about, um, two people, you can go back and forth and have some pronouns capitalized and some not, and not have to use names every time. So it is kind of convenient from a writing sense and making sure that the reader understands who you're talking about. Right. But yeah, it's, you could argue all day about it. So, all right, well, let's stop then and keep on moving on. <laughs> so then, uh, Thomas and Rama arrive and, uh, they have the wine, Rafi and Dina greet them. Uh, Rafi's Dina's husband and, um, they, they have, uh, Thomas, 
again with the like weird relationship this that they have thomas gives this like really exquisite introduction to her ma about who she is and where she's from and what the most beautiful venter yeah in all yeah, yeah, yeah and and then it turns out like that was unnecessary because um rafi is like best friends with her dad so he, he already knows who she is basically i guess i don't know um, but they sample some of the wine. Dina is really impressed by it. And Rafi is like, okay, we're going into debt just to impress the in-laws here. <laughs> so there's, there's some more of that tension. And then Thomas asks, like, Hey, can we confirm it's 40 people? Right. And, and they're like, uh, they seem a little unsure. Um, which, which is interesting. And then Jesus arrives with a whole, crew of people and uh you know mary runs to greet him the disciples walk in they're all wearing tassels this is where i noticed that um but yeah like this is where that like you know they were talking about are we going to have enough wine and they're like yeah this is what they ordered i'm sure it'll be fine and and we're starting to see the sense like oh yeah this is this is definitely going to be a problem yeah and i thought it was interesting earlier when uh, mary asked dina is is it okay that jesus brings people and there was just like no hesitation yeah right culture of hospitality like of course he can bring whoever he wants like there was no like (laughs) like even a briefest pause of like well of course do you have any idea how many he's bringing like there was just like yeah absolutely jesus can bring whoever hospitality and i thought that was very fitting for their culture yeah exactly what you would expect out of it so then uh, we're back to Nicodemus, and he's explaining um, the miracle that he saw with Mary and the the demons, and and then John like kind of starts to click for John, like, oh, this really was a miracle, and there's only one person who could have done this, and so he's he's getting excited because he realizes Jesus' time is near. He starts quoting all the scripture, and and uh, Nicodemus you know snaps back at him like don't quote solomon to me you wild mongrel like wow that's yeah that's a line (laughs) yeah there was great interaction with that and the scripture quoting like could have been way out of hand obviously if anybody's listening to my podcast i know it's probably not my favorite reasoning uh scripture usage there but it wasn't nearly as bad as it could have been either and and it was it, it was I was okay with it. It was plausible. I'll allow it. Yeah. And then, so then John continues on and, um, and, and quotes some more and, and gets Nicodemus to, to finish what he's saying. And, and then Nicodemus is like, you are careless with Torah. God does not have a son except Israel. And, uh, and that felt like a much more like the first one, don't quote Solomon to me, you wild mongrel. That was like, that was more irritation, more like, I'm better than you. And I, I think he kind of stepped back and, and now he's like, I mean, it's still a very, very strong statement. You're careless with Torah. Like the, he's not, he's not mincing his words, but at the same time, it, it felt much more, uh, not as much reactive as the first one. And just like, okay, this is very serious and we need to take this seriously. Yeah. And throughout this whole little mini scene here, and I know you're not done, but there's, there's a, just a great depiction of a dissonance. Like, they're just not quite speaking the same language. They're having a conversation about the same God, but they're not working with the same puzzle pieces, and they're not trying to put together the same, you know, puzzle at the end. And even at the end of this scene, he starts talking about light and darkness, which I loved, because it's such Essene talk. Yeah. Sons of light and sons of darkness. Which one are you going to be, Nicodemus? Which is like, for Nicodemus, like, Pharisees don't have any talk about sons of light and sons of Like, what does he care? So there's like this dissonance, and yet this engagement, and yet they... I can't even believe they depicted that so well. Like, yeah, I was just totally shocked that they used Essene language for John the Baptist, which is just so beautiful and brilliant and perfect. <laughs> uh-huh. And then Phara- and then this Pharisee, like, I, I, I want the pure, unadulterated, like, it was just, it was so well done. So well done. Yeah, yeah. John John says, you know, I wonder if, if, uh, if you're going to awaken... Or if you love the dark too much, and I'm like, whew. yeah. And then, and then Nicodemus leaves <laughs> on yeah, that note. Yeah. <laughs> so then uh, we're back to the wedding. Thomas is giving directions to the servants about the food. Uh, we see, which, by the way, I'm going to pause right here because of our conversation that we had with Portia. Um, I noticed in this episode, it's probably been in there throughout. Uh, there were. This is one episode where I started to notice in the crowd and the people at the wedding, there there is a good amount of racial diversity 
that that's not just racial, but like what I would what I would imagine historically accurate racial diversity in the characters that are depicted. At the same time, the servants were still very dark skinned individuals, and which would have been historically accurate. Like there was even in those days uh, an exploitation of. I just think of our conversation we had weeks ago with Portia Brent, and I think, like, I, I saw some of those things here, and and maybe Jesus and the disciples are making maybe maybe the the filmmakers here are taking a step in the right direction, like they are looking more Middle Eastern. They're still pretty pale, <laughs> like if we really examine the characters that are at play here with Jesus and the Havara, it's a step in the right direction. It's still not there yet. Um. And yet throughout the wedding, I at least appreciated having talked with Portia and her, hearing her story and looking for representation. And I, I'd love to even hear maybe sometime I'll get to ask her how she felt about Chosen Season 1 if she saw it. And, and those representations, uh, at least there were – there was all kinds of different people at this wedding coming from different places. Um, the characters, they, they just – you could tell that they had different backgrounds and there was a diversity to it that I think – I have been missing when I think of past depictions of the life of Christ, which is very monotone, very bland, usually pretty Anglo-European centric casting. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Um, So we see the wedding party, um, everyone singing, dancing, Uh, Rama's out there and she's... um, seems to be counting people. And then she runs in and, uh, explains to Thomas like, Oh, we have a few more people. It's like, ah, yeah, I know. They always have more people than you expect. I planned for that. And she's like, no, they count as up to 80. And he kind of freaks out. And, um, you know, they have this tense moment like, Oh, I should, I told you we should have brought that fourth jar. And then he realizes he probably shouldn't have said that in that moment. (laughs) And he's like, well, uh, three jars is enough for 60. (laughs) And so it's like, Oh man, they already know they have a problem and like everything is just starting. So, uh, the song finishes and, um, they say a blessing for the wine. The first of many times we're going to hear this blessing. And then, uh, Thomas is like talking to the talking to the servers and he's like, hey, look, uh, just pour it three quarters full. And if they make any comments about it, say, oh, yeah, OK, sorry, I'll be right back. But then you don't go back. And I, and I don't want to correct you, Brent Billings, but it's actually the second time we've heard that blessing. Oh, because it is. Because Dina uttered the blessing when she tasted the wine. Oh, you're right. Earlier. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. OK, okay good. So the second of many times that we'll hear that blessing. <laughs> So um, the banquet master comes in and he's like, hey, everybody seems to be having a good time, but the servants are kind of weird. What's going on with that? And and Thomas, you know, they just totally flatter the guy They're like, look, you're the best banquet master we've ever <laughs> seen. Don't even worry about it. And he's like, huh. And he just kind of wanders away. And then Rama's like, well, I've got an idea. So then we cut out and uh, it's Rafi and Dina. They're thanking guests for coming. And then this is, it seems like maybe some of the guests have already come and they're, and they're on their way out. But then Abner and Hella arrive at that point. And then Abner kind of pauses awkwardly for a really long time. And he's like, you know what? This is the best party I've been to in a while. And then it seems like maybe he's already a little bit drunk at this point. I'm not quite sure if that's what you they're get going that impression. for. Yeah, he's a little, I, I get the feeling he's a little bust. But he, he, you know, he goes in and, and overshares. He's like, you know, I wasn't always impressed with what was going on around here. And and I've been, uh, you know, I've been super successful and, and your family hasn't been. But maybe that's made my family too arrogant. And then he kind of trails off and. And then he looks up at the hoop and he's like, you know, that doesn't actually look crooked to me at all. <laughs> Which is, and like Rafi and Dina are just the whole time, they're just like smiling and nodding and they're just handling the tension um, with total grace. And I loved it. Yep. So then we're back with uh, Rama and they're, they're, they have the jars with the purification water. And, and she's like, well, we could do this. And Thomas is like, uh, that's not really a good idea. Like word's going to spread on that. It's going to make the family look bad. It's going to make us look bad. He's like, well, maybe we could figure out something else. We could feed them something that's going to make them ask for water specifically instead of wine. So they're, they're fishing around for ideas here and, and haven't quite come to anything that uh, seems like is going to work for them yet. 
So then we continue uh, into a montage of the whole party. Like the whole, I mean, considering this family is apparently poor, this party looks completely extravagant. The tables have all sorts of stuff. There's so many guests there. And, you know, we move into the evening. They've got all these candles. Jesus is playing games with the kids, uh, which is a great callback to a couple episodes ago. And then the disciples are off to the side at their own table and they're discussing Jesus and they're thinking about like, well, what was it like to be a kid again? And Mary's like, well, you know, the thing about being a kid is they all have to go home tonight, but, but we all get to go with Jesus wherever he's going. And we don't, we don't quite know where that is yet. Um, Andrew's maybe a little bit concerned about that. Um, Simon brings up his story about watching their father again. And Mary's like, well, maybe we'll just watch him forever. Uh, yeah, that was a great line because you immediately have this. Yeah, you, you immediately sense the obvious like, well, it's not going to be forever. There is going to come a time where you're going to have to actually respond. Uh, but I love that line. We're like, yeah, of course, we'll just watch him forever. And it will it will not be that long. Yeah. Mary's portrayal in the scene is particularly interesting to me because in some senses, like she's already had this incredibly life transforming experience with Jesus. And she's kind of, she's kind of known what he's capable of longer than anyone else. And so she has this like level of wisdom about who Jesus is and what he's doing and what, what he's going to be able to do that maybe the other disciples don't quite have. But then she also has this like naive view of, of a child like, Oh yeah, this is perfect. This is just what it's going to be like forever or whatever. So I thought that that was an interesting balance. Yeah, she has a good mix of confidence uh, and humility at the same time in what she knows and what she's confident of and how she holds it with others. It's been really nice. So then Andrew leaves to get some more wine. And um, so then Simon is musing like, you know what? I don't even understand why I'm here. Usually the students choose the rabbi, which I was like, love yeah, it. there yeah, we go. Yeah, love it. Yep. And then um, and and Thaddeus... Um, or rather James is like, yeah, I, I wasn't a student before either. Um, you know, Thaddeus told me about him and Thaddeus is like, well, I met him on a construction job and, and, and Mary's like, well, yeah, he's not a professional rabbi. He's, you know, he's been doing other stuff up to this point. And, um, uh, uh, Jesus told Thaddeus that he's building a kingdom stronger than stone. They were, they were doing some stone work, um, on their job. And, uh, Simon's like kind of poking and prodding, like, well, what were you guys building? And Thaddeus is a little embarrassed to say, and he's like, well, we can't really talk about it in front of a woman. And then Mary's like, I have seen and heard things that would turn your blood to ice. And then Simon starts to like figure out what Thaddeus is talking about. But then he realizes that Mary's talking about ice. And I was like, Do, would they even have ever seen ice? I don't, <laughs> they do talk about it getting cold at night, but w would they, I don't know. Like what, what is the, what is the knowledge of ice? in the first century. Oh yeah, sure. Not ice maybe in all the ways that we experience it, but I mean, Jerusalem gets snow. Uh, yeah, you definitely would have had ice in there. Okay. In their world. All right. Well, that's good to know. Yep. Uh, my experience is from August of, so I, I do not, <laughs> I do not have a concept yeah. of ice in Jerusalem. A couple of times in the last decade, they've been building snowmans on the, uh, on the old temple mountain, throwing snowballs. The rabbis have, so it's been fun, <laughs> fun pictures. Oh man! Uh, Did I just say pictures? Pictures. Pictures. There you go. I've been I've been getting enough garbage about that that I'm going to have to start fixing that. Photographs. <laughs> Photographs. Hey, do do whatever you have to do. I guess, huh? Look at this photograph. Uh, let's see where were we? So, um, I, I thought this was a great little detail. Like Thaddeus says, you know, he was working on the retaining wall, and Jesus was building a ramp so that. Um, anyone who couldn't walk very well would be able to get into, um, it, it was a, a restroom facility. And then Simon's like, well, why didn't he just heal those people? And so this is where they're talking about like, ah, you know, the previous miracles that he's done for us, this are private. Jesus isn't really like out in the open yet with his miracles. And, um, yeah, it, kind of a, they're just trying to figure out like who Jesus is, what he's about and what he's doing. And, and you definitely get this sense, like, I mean, Simon is really pushing for everything to get moving full speed right now, yesterday, really. And everyone else is like, 
Uh, you know, maybe let's let him go at his own pace. You know, he's the rabbi and Simon's, you know, I, I love, I love that portrayal of Simon. He's definitely like very eager. I like the theological discussion that they were just having. It sets up all the future discussions they're going to have. Cause you, you get this, they have opinions, they got convictions, like this is the right way to view Jesus. No, that, uh, what are you, uh. And at this point they're not like arguing violently, but there's definitely like these like like they all had these like, ho hum. This is my story. Hey, this is. And then you start talking about like who Jesus is and what the point is. And there was a lot more like direct. Well, well, this is what it is. And, and I just like how that was starting to feel with the group. Yeah. So then um, the banquet man, master announces the dance of Miriam, and uh, I'm, I'm assuming that's a big deal because it seems like they're <laughs> making a big deal about it. Um, I haven't been to any Jewish weddings at this point in the episode. I think my wife was like, we really got to watch Fiddler on the Roof, which I have not seen yet. So, oh, goodness, Brent Billings. I, man, I'm glad we didn't have that in the application process to come be my co-host. <laughs> I know I was, I intended to watch it before I went on, on, uh, the Israel trip in 2016 and then never did and, and still have yet to do so. So. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll give you a pass for a while. I know. I know. I definitely, I got to do it. So. Anyway, um, so then Jesus, another great little moment that's just like, there's no explanation for this, but you see Jesus walking around the corner and he turns back to finish whatever conversation. He says, watch out for the frogs this time. It's like, what in the world is he talking about? But like, he's having a great time. And uh, Simon and Andrew walk up to him and they're like, hey, Song of Miriam's happening. And then they have this conversation about Andrew having four left feet. Um, which didn't really seem to play out for me because it seemed, I mean, they don't really show his footwork later, but it seems like he was, had no problem dancing later on in the episode when they actually got to it. Um, but then Mary runs up, uh, Mary, his mother, and like, hey, they've run out of wine. And he's like, well, uh, okay, what are, you, what are you telling me for? And she's like, we can't let Asher's family be humiliated. And so Jesus kind of dismisses his disciples and, and pulls Mary aside and is like, look, my time has not yet come. And then we get the payoff from the beginning. And Mary says, if not now, when? And again, she does the almost fourth wall break and says, please. And I don't know if there's anything to it, but the first in the first shot, she was looking to the left side of the screen. In this one, she's looking to the right side of the screen. So I don't know if they were trying to communicate um, some kind of change in the relationship where like, oh, Jesus has grown up. He's on the other side of whatever. I don't know. I'm probably reading way too much into that, but I was curious about that fourth wall break and I went back and looked at each of those scenes and realized that Mary was looking a different direction each time. Huh, that's very interesting. Um I I did love the uh um see as I read John and we didn't do a whole bunch of stuff on John. I think what's happening at the wedding is I think Jesus and mom are having a a pretty major text throwdown. Um what when Jesus says my time hasn't come, it's essentially the exact same phrase, but in the op like it's the opposite of what Jacob says about Leah and Rachel. Um, my time has come was the phrase in the Hebrew when he's trying to get married to the the wife that he wants, and Jesus says my time hasn't come at a wedding, to which Mary responds with a phrase that's lifted directly out of Joseph in the very next part of the next cycle of the Genesis tale, I think they're having a text throwdown, and, and it's more than just a mother-son moment of like, pretty please, but there's actually like a very, a, a, a Mary who knows her text, which we, we know she does from the Magnificat and Luke, like she knows her Bible. And I think she's meeting Jesus word for word, text for text and saying, now, having said that, having made that point, what they did in the episode was excellent, and I loved that moment, that second, fourth wall break that you're referring to, because you, you get this real intimate sense of mom, like the power that mom has with her son. And I think we Protestants work so hard at not being Catholics that we we miss this beautiful, unique relationship between Mary and and Jesus, like we're, we're working so hard to not venerate her, ven, venerate Mary, that we we do we do ourselves a huge disservice. And I loved the way it communicated that in this episode. Yeah, and that kind of it's not quite pleading, um, but just like yeah, you can't you can't make a request like that without the relationship. So I think it just really illustrates like how how strong their relationship is. Yep, 
Absolutely. So then, you know, after she has her moment with Jesus, she just turns around and says to Thomas and Ramah, like, do whatever he tells you. <laughs> right. So then they take him in and show him the purification jars. And he's like, okay, fill them with water. And then Thomas has all these questions. Uh, Ramah's like, hey, just, just go with it. Okay. And, and Thomas continues to bring the questions and Ramah is like, well, okay. I, I guess she decides like, oh, he's going to do whatever he's going to do. He's going to ask the questions, but meanwhile, we're going to get to work. So she and all the other servants, um, start to go get water. And then Jesus says, you know, this is kind of how it is sometimes, Thomas, this is, you can't always explain everything. And it seems like, I, I don't know if, I don't know why Jesus would have known Thomas's name at that point, um, as far as the episode is concerned. And so when Jesus says Thomas's name, I, I feel like that's the part that really caught him off guard is that Jesus knew his name. I didn't even think about that. I didn't catch that, but you might be right. And and if that's what they're doing in the episode, that makes sense. I would say it's actually really plausible in the way that Jesus Havara ended up working, that they all knew each other. I feel like all 12 of these people had really prior connections. That's not playing out in the episodes of The Chosen necessarily, but historically speaking, uh, he absolutely would have, could have known his name, but I didn't catch that in the, in the episode. That's good. That's good. Good eye. Yeah. So then Jesus um, asked Thomas to join him and he says, you know, I'm going to teach you uh, a new way to count and measure. And, you know, it's kind of the, the parallel to uh, Andrew and Simon where he says, I'm going to teach you a new way to fish, uh, fish for something else. So then, um, then we're back to Abner and he is kind of messing around with his food and his glass of wine. And he realizes that he's out of wine. So he calls for Dina and the banquet master comes over and he's like, yeah, where, where is everybody? Why aren't they serving? And, and then Mary comes running up, like nothing has happened at this point. She doesn't know anything about what Jesus is doing. She doesn't know, uh, you know, what the progress is on this. And she comes up and she's like, look, the wine's coming. Don't worry about it. Like she has total confidence in her son, <laughs> which yep. I thought was great. So then, um, then Mary Magdalene and Thaddeus are talking and, um, they're talking about like, well, what, what did you, you know, did you do the, the same thing that your father did? And he's like, well, my father was a Smith, um, but every man must leave his father. Right. And he talks about how he got into cutting stone instead. And he likes how cutting stone is this, like, there's this finality to it and, you know, when you're working with iron, you can recast it into something else. You just got to heat it back up. But with stone, everything is more permanent. And then as he's, as he's saying this, um, it, they kind of overlay the images of Ramah and the servants pouring water in the jars. And then Jesus asks everyone to step outside of the room and Thomas kind of hesitates for a second. And Jesus is like, no, it's just for a moment. Don't worry. So then Thaddeus's story continues he says, you know, with stone, once you begin working with it, you can't stop. Like w once you've started, the process is in motion and there's no going back. You can't put the stone back together. And Jesus is stepping towards the jars and he looks up and he says, I'm ready, Father. We see him sweating. He places his hands on the jars and then he dips his hand in and and wine is just dripping down through his fingers. And, and he smiles and he steps out of the room and says, you know, go draw some wine, take it to the banquet master. And they go in, Ramah goes in, uh, Thomas st stands there and waits. Ramah goes in with the servants and then you hear all this cheering from inside and, and Jesus kind of smirks and, and yeah, that's, that's great. <laughs> yep. Then we're on to Rafi talking to Asher and, uh, Dina's talking to Mary Rama comes out and uh, Abner comments like, oh, it's about time they're, they're back out here. The banquet master drinks and then he calls for the music to stop. And I thought this was this was kind of an interesting way to do it, because um, in the text, actually, um, it says that he went to the, the does he go to the couple or does he go to the parents or something? But it's more of a private moment in John 2, whereas in the episode, he says like, whoa, hold on, everybody stop the music. Everybody listen up. And he, you know, explains like, look, they, they always serve the best and then they give you the cheap stuff, like whatever. And so, but this is the best wine I've ever tasted. So let's, let's, uh, let's thank them for this unnecessary, but honorable gesture. And, uh, he, he blesses the wedding and the marriage and God and they drink. And, uh, Rafi looks at Dina, like this really is that good. And Obner drinks and he stares at the cup and like just frozen and Hella asks what's wrong. And he's like, I was wrong. 
And then Mary looks at Jesus and they kind of nod in this understanding way. And then, and then we're back with Thomas and he's just staring at the jars in total disbelief. Yeah. Great moments. I, I did love that line went from Avner about, you know, she asks, you know, is there something wrong? And his exact line is. Yes. I was. With this perfect pause and it's just wonderful. Well done. The design of it, the whole stone cutter thing. Once you strike the stone, you set in motion a series of decisions, and uh, just really well done. Uh, another really, really well written scene. And I don't know if we're going to see Abner and Hella again later on in another episode, but I definitely feel like, oh, he had he had a moment. Like his whole life probably isn't going to change, but he definitely has a, a new understanding about like, okay, I need to stop making you know, harsh assumptions about everyone because I can be wrong sometimes, which is, which was great. So, um, so Simon is like, okay, Jesus, what's, we've got the fish, we've got the wine, what's next. <laughs> and, uh, Jesus is like, I don't know. And, ta- uh, Simon says, well, I'll go with you to the ends of the earth. And he says, I hope so. But we first have to deal with Andrew's weird four left feet problem. <laughs> so they start dancing and Andrew like just starts dancing like it doesn't it doesn't really seem like they play that that problem out uh seems like he's having a great time we see abner and rafi dancing together the the two dads of the bread and groom and uh and then they make a comment you know like andrew's dancing is apparently bad i don't know i don't i don't see it i don't see it being bad but even jesus's miraculous power can't help yeah some things even i cannot do (laughs) which is a great great little moment so then Thomas and Rama are, are looking at Jesus at the end of the party. Everyone's pretty much leaving for the night. And uh, Ramah's like, he gave us even more than we needed. This was amazing. We can't pretend that we didn't see a miracle. And Thomas is like, well, look, he, and, and this was interesting. I, I thought the I'm not quite sure, again, this relationship between Thomas and Rama, I'm not sure about. Because Thomas says he invited me to join him. But he wants us to meet him in Samaria in 12 days. And so I just like, is, is she supposed to, I don't, I don't understand what their, <laughs> how the relationship works. Well, the us would be a reference to the Havara, the disciples. Oh, okay. I heard that. He asked me to follow him and he wants us, the disciples, those that have been invited to meet him in Samaria. Okay. That, that makes more sense because it, it didn't seem like in the previous conversation between Jesus and Thomas that Ramah was part of it at all but at the same time like she was completely on board with him so i wouldn't necessarily be surprised to see her show up as as one of his followers even if not you know one of the 12 formally uh, you know we see mary is is definitely a disciple even though not one of the 12 so it wouldn't surprise me to see Ramah, but i don't know we'll see but thomas is like i don't know what to think and she says well maybe for once in your life don't think and that's the end of our episode. Yeah. Well, there were some great moments there towards the end. Uh, the thank you from Mary as the wedding and the dancing. You see Mary kind of mouth thank you to Jesus. You know, thank you for doing this. And, and it was one of those moments, like you said, how much does Mary know or not know? And that was a great moment of like, she doesn't even know. Like, she's thanking Jesus. And yet in the context, she's just asked him to set in motion the chain of events that will lead to his death. So. She's saying thank you. She's so full of joy and gratitude and yet has this this ignorance of what it what what's even begun because of that moment, which I thought was really good. Um just the whole wherever he goes conversation with Thomas. And I love just the way they're depicting this. This is so not your official, formal, typical full-time rabbi disciples gig. Everything about this is weird. Jesus has this, you know, not that rabbis wouldn't have had part-time jobs or what, but there would have been very popular rabbis that didn't have to do that. Here's Jesus. He's got this rogue outfit. He's got this rogue band of people that aren't even students. Uh, everything's upside down. You got a stone cutter. You got a, you got a couple of fishermen. You got a handful of fishermen. You got Mary. You got Thomas. And just this, I, I love how they're depicting just this collusion of, different characters. Uh, and I just feel like there's something so instructive for us in if we can watch and appreciate that part of these episodes, because I think we operate so much more like the Pharisees 
like the synagogue, like we have systems, we have the way it's supposed to go, we have Bible college, we have seminary, we have all these things that are, that's just how you do it, this is just the right thing to do, and the thing that Jesus did was not that. Like it was not that, it was something else. Um, And you get that sense as you watch this. There's something far less formal. There's something that's a little bit ragamuffin about what's going on. And, and I just really, I feel like we, we need to be, if there's something that this series can remind us about here, especially in season one, I'm being reminded of that aspect of the kingdom of God. It kind of colors outside the lines. And by kind of, I mean a lot, like it, it spends a lot of time outside the normal. And I I hope we can be reminded of that. Yeah, it's great. Well, with that jam-packed episode, man, that I feel like that episode did a lot of work. (laughs) It did. It had a lot of stuff going on. So much going on. Uh, For for a single event, you know, it's just basically the wedding. But, man, so much is happening. So uh, it was great. Great episode to talk about. If you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. Go to BaymontDiscipleship.com for uh, details about the show in general. Check out our episode show notes. Uh, Hopefully you're watching the episodes along with us. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.